This is Bedard on Discipleship with Stephen Bedard. Hello everyone, it's Stephen Bedard here and I'm really excited about the next few minutes that we're going to have to talk to Dr. John Stackhouse. And John, I'd like to welcome you to the uh, YouTube channel slash podcast and like you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing these days. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, again, my name is John Stackhouse. I hold the Samuel J. Michalaski Chair of Religious Studies at Crandall University in uh, Eastern Canada, in Atlantic Canada, the town of Moncton, if you know New Brunswick. And uh, I teach theology and philosophy and world religions uh, to our mostly undergraduate student population. And it's great these days to report that Crandall is face-to-face. So we are able to actually see and talk with our students. Uh, even if we mask and do all the COVID-19 protocols, it's uh, great to be back in the classroom this year more than ever. Well, that's great. Uh, my wife is actually studying at McMaster Divinity College right now, and uh, she's very disappointed that she doesn't have the, the chance to be face-to-face with her uh, teachers and fellow students. They're having to do everything on Zoom and other similar things. So I'm glad that Crandall's doing doing well there. And I've heard some great things uh, about Crandall. I know some of the, the faculty there. That's good. Very good. Now, your latest book is Can I Believe? Uh, what was it that led you to write this particular book? And... Uh, along those lines, who did you have in mind as potential readers? My concern here was to have a book that I could myself give to certain friends. Uh, people who are serious readers, people who pay attention to broader cultural patterns, people who read uh, challenging magazines like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or in, in Canada perhaps the, the Walrus. And there isn't a lot of literature by Christians aimed at that audience. Uh, there is a lot aimed by Christians at other Christians, and there is a lot aimed by Christians to what they hope are going to be their uh, non-Christian neighbors. But for a very long time, we've been handing Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis to any smart friend we had. And that book comes out of radio addresses in the middle of the Second World War. And so the cultural gap between us and Jack Lewis is getting broader and broader so that even mere Christianity is not as clear as it used to be. People are stumbling over passages they didn't used to just because the cultural gap is widening. Well, I'm certainly no C.S. Lewis, and this is certainly no mere Christianity, but it is an attempt by somebody who's made uh, his living often speaking to non-Christian audiences about religious matters to see if we can do a little bit of bridging between contemporary North American Christians and their neighbors. And so that's the point of the book, is for people who are pretty bright, have a pretty good education, uh, but aren't necessarily theological specialists. They're just interested in perhaps reading a book about Christianity. And the main question, Stephen, is actually why would anybody be a Christian? Because a lot of pretty smart people can't understand that. They, they can understand why dumb people are Christians. They can understand why crazy people are Christians. But they really don't understand why any sensible person would believe this religion anymore. And that's what the book tries to show. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated the tone of the book. Uh, some apologetics-type books come 
with the perspective of here's the evidence and unless you're an idiot you are going to now become a christian because i have just presented an airtight argument and you come at it quite a bit more humbly in fact it, it reminded me a little bit of your uh, of a earlier book of yours uh, humble apologetics that phrase kept coming uh, to mind as uh, as i read it uh, that really what you were arguing about is this is why christianity deserves to be even on the table to be a part of the discussion of uh, potential worldviews of a belief system that should be considered and i appreciated that that tone for the book Yes, unfortunately, a lot of uh, what we call apologetics, making a defense of the faith, can be pretty offensive. Uh, and I think it comes out of an insecurity often. I think a lot of Christians are uh, not really sure they can really uh, stand up for themselves and their faith in public. And so we tend to overcompensate when we get insecure and we get uh, defensive and offensive and uh, apologetics becomes martial arts. And it's, it's not supposed to be. It's, it's supposed to be giving a gift to the neighbor, not trying to conquer the neighbor. It's supposed to be saying, hey, this is something that I find really attractive. I found this really is a, a, a whole change of life for me. And if you're making a claim like that, your friend is right to say, well, on what grounds do you think this is true? How do you know you're not delusional? How do you know that you're not happy and excited about some weird thing that doesn't actually make any sense? Well, here's why. So part of the question I have is why would anybody believe this strange religion, let alone two billion people? And I think a lot of Canadians and Americans are asking that question. Here's a book that at least tries to answer that one. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, as I was reading it too, I had uh, wished that that was the book that was available to me. Uh, I came to faith uh, during my undergrad, having been an atheist before, and uh, didn't come across a whole lot in terms of of uh, why I should believe. And uh, the people who were sharing their faith were coming at it um, from very much a more experiential uh, perspective than, than I was uh, uh, from where I was coming from. And so I, I needed more, uh, some just basic stuff of why should I consider this rather than uh, someone telling me that the rapture is about to happen and if I don't uh, become a Christian, I'm going to be left behind and all of those things. I needed something a little bit deeper than that. So I, I appreciate uh, appreciate what you're putting together. And I think it's a, uh, a great resource uh, for the church. Now, uh, the other thing I really liked is you place Christianity within the context of other world religions, which uh, you uh, teach on uh, these religions uh, in in your uh, academic life. And uh, that actually uh, reminded me of a, one of my pet peeves of when uh, I mentioned about Christianity even being a religion and people say, well, no, it's not a religion. It's a, it's a relationship. And I'm like, yes, it's a relationship, but it sure awfully looks like a religion as well. And so we can talk about it in the context of that. Uh, you, in the book, uh, compare Christianity to these other religions, not in a way of attacking other religions, but uh, just kind of placing it in context. Can you very briefly, and I realize we could go on for hours just with this one question, but very, very briefly, how does Christianity fit with the other major world religions? Well, it's been one of the most interesting parts of my professional life to have to teach 
world religions in at least an introductory way. I, I don't confess to being an expert on any religion except the Christian one, but I have a nodding acquaintance with the other religions and have taught them off and on for, for 30 years. And as I teach them, I find that students ask, of course, a lot of the same questions because they're bright and they see the things I see and they remark on them. And one of the things that they remark on is how strange Christianity is relative to the other major world religions. And I found that to be an interesting insight from my students, that they notice that once I explain to them the basic logic of Hinduism or Buddhism, or Confucianism and Taoism in a Chinese context, or I explain to them Islam, they get it and they write good test answers and they say, yep, okay, now that I've seen that, I can, I can understand why millions of people find that to be a satisfactory answer to the questions of life. Because, of course, that's where religions are, right? They're maps of reality and they're ways of negotiating the world successfully. So when you understand even the basics of these great world religions, you can see why they have won in the Darwinian struggle of uh, various other religions. I mean, lots of religions have come and gone, right? Stephen, lots of them uh, have, have faded from the world. Not too many people believe in Thor and Odin anymore, except as Marvel superheroes. Nobody uh, really takes seriously a lot of the world's religions anymore. The big ones have triumphed, and not just from imperialism, but by persuasion, because they're persuasive. And yet when you come to Christianity, it's only our familiarity with it in the Western cultural context that keeps us from seeing how really odd it is. You can see why somebody would come up with a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Shintoist way of looking at things. It's impossible to imagine somebody looking at the world saying, you know, I think the key to the world is an obscure carpenter in Judea around the time of the Roman Empire who decides he's going to become a rabbi, even though he's not actually credentialed to become one. And he's going to tramp around this province of Rome for just a few years, bring together a ragtag group of relatively low status people and teach them things that are going to be so hard to understand. They're going to take decades to figure it out. And once they finally do, they are going to start the world's most popular religion. Like there's no way that anyone would think that that is a plausible story if it hadn't actually happened. And so part of what I enjoy when I teach those religions and what I try to do here is not to say the other religions are bad or dumb or wicked or something else. Actually, quite the contrary. It makes a lot of sense. You would believe those world religions. What needs to be explained is why anyone would take Christianity seriously, let alone more people than have ever taken anything else seriously as an explanation for life. Mm hmm. Even religions like Judaism and Islam, which are closer to Christianity than Hinduism and Buddhism and, and some of the other uh, Eastern religions, are still quite a bit different. I remember having a conversation with a rabbi uh, and he was saying that uh, he gets Islam like as a, as a Jew, uh, Islam makes sense to him. But Christianity, he just he just shook his head. It's like that is. It's something completely different. He didn't see it as uh, just a, a slightly different version of Judaism. Uh, it was it was a totally different animal for him. Yes, that's right. I mean, both Judaism and Islam are basically what we call moralist religions. They set out a, a kind of a legal code, an ethical framework for life, and the understanding is that you 
beings have free will and can choose to be good or bad, to obey God or not. And if you do, God will bless you. And if you don't, God won't. That's the basic teaching of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, as Christians call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the basic teaching of the Quran, that God, yes, is compassionate and merciful. God will forgive your sins to some extent. But basically, you have to be a good person. You have to be a faithful member of that faith, uh, or you are on the wrong side of the just and holy God. Now, Christians agree with all that, and then we go beyond that to say, in fact, the situation's hopeless, um, that our Jewish and Muslim friends uh, are starting from the wrong presupposition. They think that we all start life in a kind of morally balanced way, and then we can simply choose yes or no, good or bad. But Christians believe we already start in a deficit situation. We're already adult. Sin is a kind of motive force in our hearts that constantly pulls us like an appetite toward the wrong. And we can't possibly do enough good things to make up for all the bad things. And that's not even quite how it works. You can't, you can't get into heaven, so to speak, 5149. You've got to be ready to, for the world to come by being somebody ready to walk into paradise. And most of us are nowhere near being morally ready to walk into paradise without screwing it all up again. And this is part of what makes Christians look askance at Judaism and Islam is this basic psychological, spiritual insight that even if God is willing to let you get into paradise, aren't you just going to muck it up again? Because you haven't been transformed into a fully holy person. And so Christianity doesn't just offer us forgiveness of sins, and it doesn't just offer us a ticket to the world to come. It offers us a lifelong regimen of becoming more holy, becoming more godly, so that we can actually enjoy the life to come. So I, I think that we as Christians have to be careful not to oversimplify our own doctrine and our own teaching. This isn't just a matter, as you say, of inviting Jesus into your heart and having a personal friendship with God. It's a matter of coming into the family of God as an adoptee, becoming a disciple of Jesus, coming into his circle, and then acting like it and growing up so that you're actually worthy of that status. That's a pretty big deal and one that takes a lifetime to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, in your experience as a, uh, as a professor at a university and also your interactions with, with people in other contexts, what do you find to be the, the biggest uh, stumbling block or obstacle to faith for people as they're trying to figure out if they should consider Christianity? Well, I don't know. In the diversity of Canada today that there's one particular thing. Let's see. I think there's a couple that come to mind. I think one is... For many Canadians, Christianity is simply linked with uh, the way Canada used to be. Christianity is part of the old regime. It's part of the way we used to mistreat Native peoples. It's part of the way we used to be sexist and racist. It's part of the way we used to be imperialistic. And so Christianity even if people don't see any particular logical connection between the one and the other, is, is sort of implicated in the things of previous Canadian generations. It's part of what we want to leave behind 
and now we're a, an emancipated generation of freedom-loving and self-actualizing individuals. And that's pretty much been the agenda since the 1960s, right? I mean, that sounds very much like the baby boomers, sounds very much like the post-60s generation, and that's pretty much dominated Canadian culture for now about 50, almost 60 years. So Christianity is bad because it's old-fashioned, and it's part of all those old bad things we've left behind. That may not sound very thoughtful. I don't think it is actually very thoughtful most of the time, but it's still a very powerful assumption. Assumptions are powerful precisely when we don't think about them. We just take them for granted. I think another uh, obstacle for many thoughtful people is that Christianity seems to be intolerant or at least unrespectful toward other religions. Christians are always trying to convert other people. And isn't that implicitly insulting? Isn't that always implying that other people's religions are deficient and Christians alone have a religion so good they don't need to convert to anything else? So what's on about that? So that, that's a, a thoughtful obstacle. And I think the final one I'll mention is, of course, the problem of evil, that Christians purport to worship an all-powerful, competent, godly, nice, friendly God and look at the mess the world is in. Uh, either God is wildly incompetent or he's not nearly as good as we uh, thought he was. How can Christians possibly keep saying what they say about God when you just have to look around or check out your Google News feed? That doesn't seem like God is anything like what Christians say he is. So there's a few stumpers uh, right off the bat. Yeah, that rings true from conversations I've had with people as well. Now, in your book, uh, you... Um, made a, a comment about faith that I thought was very interesting. Uh, this is on page uh, 164 of your book. Uh, you're talking about uh, how someone's uh, someone comes to faith. And uh, so you see, um, you talk about uh, Hebrews 11 and the definition of faith there about believing that God exists and then trusting God to be uh, good if we turn to him, and that that's the definition of faith. And you say, uh, that person's actual understanding of God might be shadowy and distorted indeed. As Christian theologians believe is true of, say, a Muslim believer or Hindu devotee of Vishnu, or frankly, a typical North American Christian. But whoever actually encounters God, as the Holy Spirit can make possible for anyone, anywhere, and responds in humble trust, meets the criteria of this famous biblical chapter, on faith, and so I was very interested in that. In that, um, depending on which uh, uh, tradition I have uh, been a part of at the time, uh, some people have believed that you need to hold to certain doctrines, and you have to have a certain amount of intellectual belief uh, before you are considered uh, a born again Christian. That that's the almost as if, and and I think you address this almost as if when we stand before God at one point. Uh, we're going to have a, a theological quiz, and if we don't get the answers right, then we're, we're going to be in big trouble. And I was just uh, was wondering if you would kind of unpack that a little bit. What is it that a Christian needs, or a person needs to know to become a Christian? Well, that's a big subject, Stephen, so <laughs> thanks a lot for raising that on a podcast. <laughs> But let's see what we can do in a few minutes at least, and the book uh, tries to set that out in a little more detail. First, I think the claim that I want to make on behalf of reading Hebrews 11 and other relevant scriptures 
uh, is not that somebody can become a Christian without Christ. That wouldn't make any sense. You really would have to know who Jesus is to become a member of his household, uh, a Christ follower. So, of course, to become a Christian uh, is to hear about Jesus, to understand the gospel, to accept it, ideally to have some scripture, if not the whole Bible, to go with, and so on. And you and I would, of course, agree with that. So the, the more radical claim that you're interested in is whether somebody can have saving faith, whether somebody uh, can actually enjoy the benefits of what Jesus accomplished in his life, in his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and so on, whether somebody can profit from that, can benefit from that if they've never heard of it. That, that to me is the interesting question. Do you have to have heard of what Jesus did to be blessed what Jesus did? The traditional Christian answer has been, yes, you do. Uh, the, the traditional Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant answer has been, unless you've heard the gospel, understand it, and freely receive it, you're going to hell, because that's the only way to God. But a minority tradition in those three groups of Christians, and certainly in the Protestant tradition I'm part of, says actually that's to that's to oversimplify things yes all christians believe that we are saved from our sins and our sinfulness and we are put on the right track to god we're given a new birth and we're given the holy spirit to grow up all of those good things happen only because of what god does and what god did particularly in the career of jesus christ so we all agree with that we all have crosses in our churches because we all agree that that's true but then how does God get the goodness of all of that action he's done to each person? Well, through the Holy Spirit, we would say. And the Holy Spirit is not confined only to Christian people. For instance, the Holy Spirit is busy through the whole Old Testament when there aren't any Christians yet. Right? The first 39 books of the Bible are all about the people of God before Jesus is even born. And there are examples of faith. In fact, Hebrews 11... Christian book in a Christian New Testament says all these examples are believers and none of them are Christians. They're all Old Testament saints. The rest of the world is what we might call epistemologically BC. That is to say, even though they're chronologically after the time of Jesus, when it comes to what they know, they're as if it's BC. They, they, Jesus hasn't come to their village. Jesus hasn't come to their culture. They don't know. Or if Jesus has, the message of Jesus has been implicated in imperialism, has been implicated in British gunboats or, uh, or American popular culture. So he's not really being seen for who he is. So are all those people necessarily lost? And I would say I don't think we have to worry that they are. So in this book, which is trying to help people who aren't Christian come to terms with Christianity, I'm trying to at least eliminate some objections they might reasonably have. And I think for some people, it's just scandalous that somebody could be born and grow up and die in ancient China, have never a chance of hearing about Jesus, and they're necessarily going to an eternity of hell. I agree with them. I don't think we have to believe that as Christians. So if we don't have to believe it, we shouldn't, because it is offensive. It is. It does make God look to be unjust. Instead, Romans 1 says that God has shed his light abroad in everybody's heart, that God has not left himself without witness all around the world. 
fact, Paul, Paul's whole argument in Romans is that everybody's without excuse because everybody does have some of the light of God. And then what the passage in Hebrews talks about, a different New Testament book, is to say that when people do encounter the light of God and do give themselves in faith to God, saying, would you please help me? God loves to help people. He loves to reach down and help people. And so if you believe that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews says, you have faith, like all these Old Testament examples. So that, to me, is an obstacle that Christianity needlessly puts in the way of inquirers, and we can happily get rid of it. One of the things I appreciate about that is that it doesn't have the, the narrow view that you have to have a certain amount of theological knowledge, and you have to have prayed a certain prayer, and, and so on. But you're also not taking a universalist perspective where... God's kind of a, a kindly old grandpa who just so oh well, you know, I'll let them all in because I just love them all so much. Uh, there, there's a response that's expected and, and a certain acknowledgement of a need for God, whatever that might look like. And so I do appreciate that. And one of the other things about that, um, one of the areas very important to me is uh, that of disabilities. And I think of people with developmental disabilities. I have two children with autism, uh, who are on the severe end of the uh, scale. I would say my my son uh, has a pretty good uh, understanding. Uh, he uh, He's nonverbal, but he, he loves church, and uh, I, I really see uh, a, uh, a vibrant faith in him. But my daughter uh, is a little bit, um, struggles more. And, you know, if she ever had to have some kind of understanding of the Trinity, or anything like that, uh, or even, uh, you know, basics of the atonement, there's just, there's no way. There's no way that that's something that she would be able to grasp. And uh, so when I hear that people suggest that there's a certain level of theological knowledge you need, it's, it's concerning for me. Yes, and normally people who defend the majority view, in fairness, they usually put brackets around people who have cognitive difficulties of various kinds, and they say, we don't know about them. We don't want to say that they're necessarily going to hell. So they would they would grant the difficulty of that, like very small children or you know, developmentally very young or people with various other kinds of mental deficits. So in fairness, the traditional view just puts brackets around that and says, I don't really know. Um, I, th- I think what the view that I'm suggesting makes more sense of is that if the light of God is shining on you and you grow toward it, that's what God wants. If you grow away from it, then you grow away from it and you grow away from the source of all good. And my universalist friends, some of them might be sentimental uh, folk, like you said, others of them are more rigorous theologically, but uh, the, the problem to me with universalism, with the idea that eventually everybody will come to faith, that would be the more biblical form of universalism, right? That everybody eventually will come to faith in God, as opposed to a pluralism that says, oh, God just accepts everybody who's sincere. You can be a sincere Buddhist or a sincere Muslim or a sincere racist or a sincere sexist. It just doesn't make any sense, right? But I think that the the kind of universalism that does make sense uh, is to say that God is not willing that any should perish. God simply works on people even over centuries in the life to come to draw them to himself. 
itself. So it's a lovely image, and it's not crazy to think that. The problem is, it seems to me, there's no really strong biblical basis for it. There's no real biblical hope that that's what's going to happen. Instead, there are quite stark biblical warnings that this there is one life, and after that, the judgment, and you need to decide. Um, so uh, as much as I you know, understand the, the, the universalist point of view, um, and I can sympathize with it, I, I just don't think it's true. And if it isn't, then we need to redouble our efforts to try to help our friends and neighbors come to see Jesus for who he really is. Amen. That'll preach. <laughs> and speaking of preaching, uh, that brings me to my next question. Uh, I'm a pastor of a, of a local church. And uh, during this time of COVID, we have been, uh, like many churches, putting out our services online. And now... Uh, more people than ever have access to what pastors are saying. They don't have to uh, get dressed and, and show up at a church for the first time and, and try to figure out what Christians do. They can just click a button and they're there. So now pastors are um, reaching perhaps uh, more uh, non-Christian, non-churched uh, people than they have before. What advice would you give to pastors in their preaching and uh, the way they conduct a worship service to help um, help people to believe, or at least to not make mistakes that would be stumbling blocks to believe. Well, one of the best things about the career I've had, Stephen, is to uh, I've gone back and forth between secular schools and uh, Christian schools. Uh, my own background, I, I was raised in Ontario and went through public schools and uh, right through high school and then went to a Bible school out in Alberta for a year and then went to a secular university for my undergraduate degree at Queens, then went to a Christian graduate school at Wheaton in Chicago and then to a secular university uh, at the University of Chicago for my doctorate. Then I taught at a Christian college in Iowa and then I taught for eight years at the University of Manitoba, which isn't anybody's idea of a Christian university. And then I taught at Regent College, which is a Christian place out in Vancouver, and I should have gone then to a secular place, so, so the, the, the rhythm got broken up because I went from Regent here to Crandall. But even here at Crandall, I get kind of the best of both because even though we are uh, an explicitly, intentionally Christian university, we're happy to teach anybody who wants to come. So while the faculty and staff are all convinced Christians, the student body ranges from very serious Christians to not very serious Christians to token Christians to people who really don't like Christianity to people who are devotees of other religions from another, a number of other countries. So all of my previous experience helps me then in class to things down in a way that people who don't have much religious background can understand. Now, the point of my mentioning all that is that I think that also helps me preach better when I'm standing in front of a group of people who have shown up to church. Because I think the today's preacher cannot assume very much biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, uh, very much understanding of the basics of the faith, even in front of most congregations. I think if you were to do to, to give your congregation a 10-question theology quiz some Sunday morning, I think it could be very interesting and very illuminating as to what kind of background knowledge the average congregant really is bringing to church on Sunday morning. 
But even if they knew, even if they were able to get a pretty high score on that, by rephrasing timeless truths of the gospel in a way that a typical non-Christian Canadian would understand them and find them interesting helps me preach to Christians whose ears have become dull to the same cliches being brought out over the same topics. You know, it's like, yes, praise the Lord, that's really true. Um, but it's it's not exciting anymore because mm-hmm. it's cliché. Cliches aren't false, they're just too familiar. So I think if we as preachers are thinking intentionally about trying to explain what Christians really do believe and why a sensible person would possibly buy something like that, I think we're going to help our fellow Christians as well. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's very helpful. I hope that any pastors who are listening to this are are catching that. That's great, great advice. Now you talked about being uh, uh, in churches in Canada. And one of the things, one of the reasons I was glad to talk to you as a fellow Canadian I uh, appreciate uh, what you've done in that area. Um, not all of the, the people watching or listening here will be Canadian, but I thought I would grab a little bit of uh, wisdom from you at what you see, how you see the church in Canada right at this moment. Uh, sometimes Canada has been described as somewhere between the United States and Europe in, in terms of uh, where we're at. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, where do you see the, the church in Canada at the moment? Well, in fact, sociologically, uh, that's still true. When it comes to the sociology of religion in Canada, the patterns in Canada do still place us somewhere between Great Britain and the U.S. Um, Great Britain is even less uh, religious than we are uh, as uh, in terms of how many people go to church on, on a weekend or you know, synagogue, mosque, good water, whatever. Um, quite low attendance in Britain, um, slightly higher in Canada, significantly higher in the U.S. Canada, Australia, New Zealand are pretty similar, and um, the parts of the U.S. that are most like Canada are the spiritually coldest parts of the U.S., New England and the Pacific Northwest. That's where the numbers of church attendance and so on start to look like national Canadian numbers. And then, of course, there are pockets in Canada that are even worse. Quebec, almost as, a, as a, the whole of Quebec, is uh, almost completely non-church going, as would be uh, most people in Vancouver. So it's another particularly cold spot. Still, there are um, new shoots of, of green life that are sprouting in Britain uh, and also in Canada. Uh, some of the most interesting stories in Britain are uh, immigrant churches, churches that are pastored by uh, immigrant pastors that both serve their fellow immigrants and also native-born uh, Britishers as well. Uh, two of the largest churches in London are pastored by pastors from Nigeria, and they minister to West Africans, but also to increasing numbers of uh, white Brits as well. Uh, We haven't seen that sort of thing in Canada yet, but we are seeing uh, more immigrant churches booming, uh, particularly from uh, Chinese and Korean backgrounds. In the Protestant side, uh, the Filipinos, especially on the Catholic side, 
that can make a significant difference, particularly in metropolitan areas. I think of Toronto, uh, Winnipeg, and Vancouver in particular. We're still, though, as Canadians, we're still getting over Christianity. And uh, I think in the greater Vancouver area, that's done. In most of the rest of the country, there's still a kind of resistance and resentment toward Christianity's former cultural domination. It's probably going to take just one more generation. I don't see it in my students. I, I think that when they become full-fledged adults, I think we'll be done even out here in Atlantic Canada. I think Christianity has ebbed so much that that's kind of resistance and resentment, which is so typical of the baby boomers, is not really typical of millennials and younger. And now it's going to be a kind of a nice, open, level uh, marketplace of competing uh, religions and ideologies. So the privileges that Christians used to enjoy, they're just about gone with the wind. But I think also the backlash is subsiding. And I think some of us who are older ones who have lived through that backlash can still be pretty defensive and a little resentful. We remember when things were so much better, blah, blah, blah. I think uh, I think the next era of the church, we're going to see fewer Christians and better ones. And my hope is that this next generation is going to perhaps have a, a significant revival of genuine Christianity in Canada after these tumultuous decades since the 60s. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. That's uh, very helpful. Now, uh, I see a lot of uh, books in on your bookcase behind you there. Uh, not necessarily one of them, but is there one book that has really influenced you, uh, either as a Christian or as an academic? Oh, well, my life is mostly books, so there are lots uh, that have, uh, to be sure. I think when uh, on the subject today uh, of, of sharing our faith in a way that our, uh, our contemporaries would find uh, interesting, uh, of course, C.S. Lewis is still instructive for us. And even if we go even further back to an author who was writing over 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton, still had the combination of playful wit and very probing intelligence. Chesterton had a lot of courage to say impolitic things. And he had, of course, a wonderful way with words so that he could put sugar on the difficult medicine he was administering to his uh, fellow Brits a uh, hundred years ago. And, and those two are, are, are both masters of putting a, a, a true point in a fresh way that is no more offensive than it has to be, but they don't pull their punches either. And that, that control, that kind of, of uh, ability to pitch things well is something that's, of course, a challenge for any good writer and uh, has been uh, a bracing challenge for me. So I think particularly of Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, that's the one I would most recommend. And for your viewers and, and listeners, Stephen, who have gotten beyond something like mere Christianity, uh, I think probably the book of Lewis's that's the most overlooked and is the theologically richest is his book called Miracles. Mm -hmm. I think there are more interesting theological ideas in that book than in most of the theological textbooks on my shelf, and I commend that one to anyone who'd like to go a little deeper into the great truths of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. I recently read 
reread Miracles and was amazed that a lot of people don't talk about it near as much as they'll talk about something like uh, Mere Christianity or even screw tape letters or or whatever uh that miracles is is so good and i actually read it for the first time uh just a year after i became a christian so i knew hardly anything and uh, yet uh, even though i i didn't fully understand all of his arguments there the way he he uh, talked about those things at least assured me that intelligent people could wrestle with this that you didn't have yeah. to be um uh a simpleton to believe that there is a supernatural and that God can can intervene in, in certain ways. So that was good. Uh, when you were talking about how Chesterton and Lewis uh, knew uh, how they argued well, um, one of the things I, I think of is that they knew which battles to, to fight over. And that's probably one of the, the problems that the church has. That we're, we're often fighting, but we're fighting the wrong battles. And uh, that's something that Chesterton and, and Lewis can still uh, point us in the right direction. So I, I, uh, I would add my uh, uh, agreement in terms of, of those books. Well, I really appreciate you taking this time, John. This has been great. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to, to follow more about what you're, you're writing about? Well, thanks. I'm on johnstackhouse.com. And I have a weblog there, which I add to from time to time. But there's lots of reading that's been posted there over the years. So just johnstackhouse.com. And on Twitter, uh, I tried to have an ordinary Twitter handle, but we were worried back then about 140 characters. So I kept my handle short, and, and all the cute ones were gone. So mine's a boring one. It's my initials, JGS, and my degree, PhD. So I am at JGSPhD, and you can find me there. Okay. Well, I hope people will check you out there. Thank you again for your time. And I definitely would encourage people to to read this book, uh, Can I Believe? Well, yes, you can believe. And uh, I hope that you will, you'll uh, read it. And more than that, that that will be the book that you share with your thoughtful friends.